Hello and welcome to another episode of the PA Path Podcast. Before we get started, we'd like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor, Aquifer. Today we meet Erica Brooks and Olivia Ziegler, two of the PA Education Association's outstanding leaders. Erica has worked in graduate medical education for 12 years, and she manages the Centralized Application Service, or Physician Assistance, commonly known as CASPA, for PAEA. She also works with prospective applicants and health professions advisors to ease anxiety around the application experience. Olivia Ziegler has been a PA for 26 years and a member of PAEA staff for the past 10 years. She is currently serving as the Chief Experience Officer with the responsibilities for strategic and operational leadership of membership engagement, admissions, and assessment. Olivia and Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted to have two experts from PAEA here to talk about the experience for applicants and trying to understand CASPA and that whole process. We've talked about it from the program perspective. We've had some prior students on a couple episodes, but we've never had anybody from PAEA really open up the curtain to really explore this. So we're looking forward to today's conversation. Let's start with your paths to becoming involved with PAs. I know, Olivia, you are a PA, so maybe you can start and share kind of your path to becoming a PA, what you did clinically, how you got to PAEA. And then, Erica, how did you end up being involved in admissions for PAEA, and how's it been going? So let's start there. Thanks, Kevin, and I appreciate both of you having me on. It's been a really exciting path and an exciting career. I was very young when I went to PA school. I was the youngest person in my class, unsure of the commitment to a healthcare profession. And when I found this profession, I felt like it would give me an opportunity to do different things over the course of a career. And in fact, it has. I've been a PA for 26, going on 27 years, and I feel like I've had three careers. I've been a clinician, an educator, and, and now I'm at PAEA. I spent nearly a decade in practice in Salt Lake City, working in pain medicine and palliative care. I was on a, a consult team that covered multiple hospitals, and it was really academically minded. So I had an opportunity very early in my career to publish, to attend conferences. Um, I even got to go to a conference in Tanzania on international palliative care. So I was really encouraged to be engaged in academia and in leadership. For example, I had the opportunity to sit on the clinical executive board at the Salt Lake City VA very early in my career. So it was an exciting time. But on that service, I got asked to be a preceptor. And that's what really got me hooked into PA education. Al Ford and Don Peterson were early mentors for me. And when they offered me a job at the University of Utah, I jumped at that job to move from clinical practice to education. I was the director of clinical affairs for their program for a number of years and again, had an opportunity to participate in different leadership activities, including working, for example, on our AHEC board. I was an accreditation site visitor. And I really found that I liked those activities and that I liked the administrative side of my job. So when the job at PAE came up, it felt like a really good fit for me as an administrative job for the profession. And Tony Miller and, and Timmy Agar-Barwick were extremely supportive in helping me make that transition from education to working at a professional association. At PAEA, when I was first hired, I was a generalist to some extent. I, I wore a lot of hats. I was one of only two PAs of the association, and I believe there were only 14 employees there at the time. 
again, I was afforded leadership opportunities. So that's been a theme in, in my career where I've, I've had an opportunity to be at leadership tables. And we had just launched our, our end of rotation exams. And I became more of a specialist in assessment at PAEA for most of the 10 years that I've been there. But now this past year, I've been given the opportunity in a, in a relatively new role as chief experience officer to be a generalist again. And so that's really exciting for me. And in, in this role, I have a leadership responsibility for our membership team, our admissions team, which includes CASPA, and our assessment products. So it's really exciting to have that sort of overview of PA education. And again, very grateful to be here and very grateful for the path that this profession has afforded me. That's right, Olivia. I forgot that you had such a big role with assessment and we had Dr. Cavanaugh on last year talking about all the great work that assessment has been doing. So congratulations on that. Thank you. So Erica, how about you? How did you end up in this role and what has it been like for you working with PAEA? Getting to this role was a little non-traditional for me. I did not think that I would be here. I like to call it happenstance and kismet, working all together at the same time. I was at a different healthcare association and I was really into the technology space and understanding our end users needs. And a colleague said, I think you would be really good. I know the woman who was my predecessor, who is, she was like, she's leaving. You would be really great in this position. I think you should apply. I was like, oh, I like my job. I don't really know much about PAs. I'm comfortable here. And then she said to me again, I think you would be really good. It's a challenge for you. You've got a lot of skills. You could do great things at PAEA. And that was five years ago this month. It's my five-year anniversary here. And PAEA has really given me the opportunity to be creative and you don't really think about creativity in a technical space, but it's giving me a lot of creativity to think about how to expand our reach to applicants and increase exposure about the profession because I had very little knowledge of the PA profession coming into it. I had a fraternity brother who was a PA, but that was the only person I knew who was a PA and that was in the early 2000s. And so just thinking about expanding, it's really been a great opportunity for me to be here, and I, I love it. I think that most of our listeners probably know that CASPA that we have referenced is the Centralized Application Service. I would guess that most all PA programs, most PA programs are utilizing the CASPA service. So really anyone who is looking to apply to a PA program must go through the CASPA process, correct? That is correct. There are a handful of programs that do not use our application platform for various reasons, but the majority of PA programs do accept their applicants using our centralized application platform. When you think about we're leading into the CASPA portal opening for the next cycle, usually around the end of April, correct? Correct. Are there things that applicants can be doing in the lead up to CASPA opening to get ready for that cycle, um, whether they're a new applicant or a reapplicant, what this is, a, I know this is always an angsty period for applicants in this lead up to CASPA opening. So, what would your advice be to students and PAs who are thinking about applying this cycle? Sure. One of the most beneficial things that applicants can start doing now is thinking about who their letter authors 
are going to be. And not just, oh, I know Sarah, who's my neighbor, who's an NP, she can write a letter for me because she knows me. But someone who's really going to write a letter to talk about how you can contribute to the PA profession as a whole and your academic rigor and can talk about your characteristics. So identifying who your letter authors are going to be early on and having conversations with them about the types of things to talk about in your letter. Is there something specific you want them to highlight? Did you watch your grandmother go through hospice care and transition and you played a role in that and how you were able to manage dealing with that and your academic career? Or did you ace your organic chemistry class and you were the top student but to have your professor talk about not only did you excel academically, but you were also able to manage your extracurricular activities and your academics in those courses. That's really important. I have come across letters of evaluation where letter authors are like, this is a great student. They excelled in my class. They would not make a great clinician. And it's because the letter author hasn't had the conversation with the student about what things to include in the letters. Or the letter is very general that says, Olivia would be a great PA. I'm a PA. I would love to work beside her. But there's no meat to the letter. The letters of evaluation really give the PA programs that you're applying to a glimpse into who you are. So that's one of the most important takeaways that I like to tell our pre-PAs um, to use this time to focus on, as well as start thinking about your personal statement. Um, your personal statement is your first interview question. It is your first chance to make a first impression outside of the spelling and the grammatical errors, but your personal statement should be personal to you and talk about your personal mission and your values and how they apply to the PA profession and how your experiences have helped shape you to want to be a healthcare provider within those 3,500 characters that we give applicants. This is a really great time to start thinking about that before the application opens and all of the nervous energy comes with, oh, I have to do everything right now. I have to get it in. I have to get it in. Right now, there's about four months for you to start working on your essay and to go through that review process and to really flesh out some of those ideas. So those are the top two takeaways that I like to tell applicants to start working on right now. So for letters of reference, sometimes I find that my pre-applicant, my pre-PAs who are connected to medicine, their mom's a nurse, their dad's a doctor, they have a unique advantage to get into the network of the family of healthcare to try to grab letters of reference that really seem to matter a lot to PA educators. If a PA speaks up for you, I think sometimes we have a bit of a, a bias in that because they're, you know, they're part of us, right? But students who maybe don't have that advantage, that maybe come from a family that is involved in another part of the world in the economy and healthcare is not part of that, might struggle to get those letters that highlight those kind of healthcare traits that we're looking for, compassion, integrity, care for people that are in, in need of care. How do you advise students that come from maybe economically disadvantaged backgrounds or a different family set 
to try to navigate the world to get letters that can be meaningful to them? Evan, thank you. That's a great question. This is where we encourage students to work with their health professions advisors because their health professions advisors have a very great insight into who these students are. And the advisors typically have a great pulse on what health professions are looking for in their admissions process. Even though they are not a health professional themselves, they can speak to the things that health care associations are looking for. There's also a resource by the AAMC, which is a letter author's guide that talks about what things should be included in a letter of evaluation. And so when I am at pre-PA events speaking with students who are getting ready to apply and may not have a large breadth of shadowing or healthcare experience hours, and I need someone to write a letter for me, but I'm unsure, I always direct them back to that resource from the AAMC because even though they're not a healthcare professional, it still highlights the things that are meaning to healthcare professions to include in the letter. So that's one resource that I give to students. Flipping the script, in conversations with admissions officers and they're talking about their letter requirements, I always frame the question back to, does the author of the letter matter or does the content of the letter matter? Just because I don't have a letter written by a physician, an MP, a PA, but if I have a letter who was written from someone who I've volunteered with at a homeless shelter, they can speak to my level of compassion, my level of empathy, my professionalism that I have. And those are all characteristics that regardless if it's coming from a healthcare professional or not, are still applicable to the PA profession. That was the example I was going to give, and I love where she went with that. I, I was actually thinking of somebody who's volunteered potentially at a food pantry. The values and the, the characteristics that involve caring for people in need apply in non-healthcare spaces, and oftentimes those are the experiences that college students have access to. And so talking to your supervisor in that volunteer capacity gives you an opportunity to ask them to write a letter explaining those characteristics and explaining your commitment and explaining the responsibilities that you've taken on in that activity and get to that same space potentially. So it sounds like you would both be advocating for PA educators to look a little differently at the who of the letter and really look at the substance of what they're saying about this individual, regardless of the venue that it's coming from. Absolutely. Yeah. I want one just quick follow-up on that. As we know, a lot of people are busy when you're asking people to write letters of reference. I had a mentor who strongly encouraged me to offer to draft a letter for them, and then they would edit it to their language and their skills. What I found for that is it allows me to think strategically about what are the things that I want to be said about me that I can pick four or five people to craft a, a broader message with. Is that something that you've given advice to students for in the past? I'll take a first stab at that. Erica can speak directly to the applicant pool and, and, and advice that our team has used. I'm going to go back to what she initially said about the importance of communicating with the letter writer. 
And I think a lot of college students haven't had this experience. It takes picking up the phone and having a conversation about why you want to be a PA, what the requirements are to get into PA school, what characteristics you want included in the letter that you want them to emphasize or highlight. That takes some preparation on your part and a conversation. And I believe that should happen at a minimum. Having been a, a letter writer, and I'm sure um, that Stephanie and Kevin, you both have that experience too. If somebody just asks you to write a letter, your first question is for what? And what do you want me to highlight? And what are the criteria for the position? And you need information. And so really being prepared and, and being able to have that conversation provided in, in writing as a follow-up is really critical. Erica, how are we advising specifically on this? We're doing exactly what you said. We are advocating for students to have that conversation with their letter authors and to even write them an email and say, I'm applying to PA school for the upcoming application cycle. This is an overview of what the PA profession is. These are some of the prerequisite courses that are required. These are some of my strengths that I would like you to highlight and to really begin that dialogue with the letter author. We do not encourage students to write their own letter of evaluation and send it to the letter author and have them write it. We would like those words to come directly from the letter author. However, that may take some of the content that you give them about what your strengths are and use that in their own language, but the letter should be written in totality by the letter author. Thank you very much. Let's take a quick break to learn more about our episode sponsor, Aquifer. With so much to cover in so little time, today's PA program directors and faculty need clinical learning tools they can trust. Enter Nonprofit Aquifer. They provide cases, science integrations, formative assessments, and more to ensure students hone their clinical skills. Clinicians at academic medical centers write the cases to cover topics recommended by clerkship directors. Visit aquifer.org to learn more. Every year, there are far more qualified, excellent applicants for PA programs than there are seats available. Consequently, that results in a lot of really great candidates for PA schools, for PA programs, not achieving a seat in a program. So there are a lot of folks out there who are applying for a second or maybe a third time. From the perspective of their CASPA application, are there things that you would tell reapplicants they should focus on or change or adjust when they're completing a repeat CASPA application? Yes. The CASPA Advisory Committee actually created a So You Want to Reapply resource for our reapplicants for this very reason, with the understanding that not every PA program has the bandwidth to answer all of the questions as to, I was not granted an interview, what can I do to strengthen my application? I was granted an interview, but denied admission. What can I do to strengthen, to give applicants some ideas on how to strengthen their application from one cycle to the next? On that list, it talks about reworking your personal statement. What you thought was cohesive and delivered a clear message may have some gaps in it, and so it needs to be reworked a little bit. Looking at your academic coursework and your grades compared to the programs that you're applying to, are you meeting or exceeding the program minimums? 
are standardized tests required? Do you need to retake your standardized test to try to score a little bit higher on your GREs scores? And looking at your shadowing and healthcare experience hours, for some of our really qualified applicants, what stops them from going over the hurdle is they're applying to a program that requires 500 healthcare experience hours and they've only have 50 to 100. So giving them opportunities and thinking about ways to increase shadowing or healthcare experience hours when you're going back to look at your application and having the conversation with yourself, it's expensive to apply to PA school. Is it worth me to apply the next cycle or do I need to take time off, do some self-reflection determine is the PA career for me and how can I maximize this effort by becoming a CNA, a phlebotomist, doing some additional work so that I can really have a strong application the next time I come around. I would just add that I think it's important to address it in your personal statement too, to address the self-reflection that you've gone through, what you've done in the time between your applications to make yourself a stronger candidate. Showing that self-reflection in your personal statement really takes, I think, personal strength and it's a sign of leadership when you can do that. There have been times when I've been reviewing an application and it was a reapplicant, and I've searched the whole thing over saying, what's different this year? And I've actually gone back to their previous application and put them side by side and said, is there anything different? And I, I think that there are probably a lot of application reviewers that won't take the time to do that. And if it seems to them that nothing has changed and you haven't taken the time, whether it's in your narrative or how you've completed your CASPA application to really draw out and highlight what you've done to improve your application and to address that and to address what it meant to not get in the first time. And because I think that perseverance really speaks highly that you have come back and you've said, no, this is what I want to do. Um, and here's how I've just continued to make myself more competitive. Yeah. And I, if I had a dollar for every time a reapplicant told me, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't get in last year because X, Y, or Z happened. And that would have been so hard to be successful. But it seems to me the universe really does help them get in at the, the right time in their lives for the most part. But it's hard, right? It's hard to trust the universe to take care of you that way. And it's you're emotionally invested, so you want to get in when you want to get in. You don't want to delay your opportunity to do what you're desiring to do. So let's talk a little bit about the cost, because I think, again, this is not a cheap endeavor. It is a, a worthy investment in terms of the return on your investment long term. You, know, you as a PA, are going to make over a million dollars in your career easily, probably over 10 to 15 years as compared to many other professions. So it's a, it is a great profession to make a difference in the world, but also you can make a good living, but it's not cheap to get in. So you're talking about some schools require standardized testing. We've already talked about our bias against that and the data on discrimination for disadvantaged communities and how we highly encourage our colleagues to get rid of standardized testing, but those aren't cheap and prep courses aren't cheap. And then you have the applicant costs in terms of applying through CASPA. Can you talk a little bit about how to prepare for that mentally and what those costs generally are for if I'm going to apply to one program versus multiple and any other ways that they can try to access waivers to those costs? Sure. When I'm at recruitment events or emailing 
and in conversation with applicants. And this question comes up, how do I afford to apply? Unless they are getting ready to apply in April, I will tell them, if you can spare $5, $2, $0.50, put it in a jar, and that's your application money. Those little pennies, quarters, dollars, they all start to add up. But at the end of the day, it's some of the burden off of yourself when it comes time to pay. Um, I am grateful to work for an association that does not believe financial burden should be a deterrent from applying to PA school. So PAEA has a fee waiver program that covers two designations to apply to the a PA program. And so the fee waiver award is $245. Um, it covers your initial submission, which is $181. And then any additional program that you apply to after that is $61. And to apply for the fee waiver application, it is actually housed inside of the CASPA application. And there's a fee waiver button in the applicant and or their parent, if they are dependent, need to be 200% below the federal poverty guideline. Um, and they would submit their taxes and then receive a notification within about 10 business days, whether or not you've been awarded a fee waiver. And in your award letter, it lets you instructions on how to claim your award. If I don't say anything else from this podcast that is not taken away, it is this. Your fee waiver award is only good for that first time you submit. So you cannot apply to one program and say, oh, I'm going to use that $61 later. Once you submit the application, you've used your award, regardless if you've used it in totality. There are applicants that are leaving money on the table. So please, once you're ready to submit to your two programs and add later, $245, I remember being a college student, as in a full adult, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but to a college student, that's a lot of money. And every time I see that students are leaving money on the table, it hurts my heart. So that's super important for students. Also, there are some PA programs that require the GRE. There's a fee waiver that ETS offers, and we have a link to that on our PA website for students to help them reduce the cost of applying um, and taking those GRE scores. If you don't qualify for ours, you may qualify for the one for ETS. Anything can help reduce those costs when applying. Some programs have fee waivers for their supplemental applications as well, correct? That is correct. There are some programs that either do not have a supplemental or if you've qualified for the PAEA's fee waiver, you can submit your award letter and they will waive your supplemental application fee. Sure. And also two years ago, PAEA introduced coupon codes to as an additional way to help offset the cost. There are some programs that offer coupon codes to their applicants, regardless of if you've qualified for a PAEA fee waiver or not, you can just call them up and say, hey, I'm wondering, do you have a coupon code that can assist me apply to your program? I'm very interested. And they may give you a coupon code to apply to their program. So that's another way to help offshoot the cost. 
If I can add, Kevin, the, the fee waiver program is really in such direct alignment with the core values of PAEA. And we know that it has a big impact. And the numbers of people who are requesting fee waivers, uh, the numbers of people who are being granted fee waivers, and the numbers of people who are actually spending the fee waivers go up year over year. The PAEA board consistently puts funding into this program. And in the last year, they put over $400,000 into this program. So really, we're putting our money into this program because it's important to us. And I want to thank the board for that. The other thing that we know, which is really cool, is that nearly 40% of fee waiver um, recipients have successfully matriculated into PA programs. We know that we're helping students who are really great candidates, and we're helping them on that pathway to becoming a PA. That's great. Now, you mentioned at one point we talked about this opportunity for students who don't have the pre-health advisors at their university to access something that you offer. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Sure. One of our external organizations that we have a, a relationship with is the National Association of Advisors for the Health Professions, or NHP. They have a resource called Find an Advisor for Students who are non-traditional or there is no health professions advisor on their campus where you can fill out a form and be connected with an advisor, a health professions advisor from anywhere in the nation. And they're volunteering their time to help advise a student matriculate or navigate the pathway in the PA profession or any of the other health professions. That's fantastic. It's a really great organization. We partner with them and do case studies about admissions studies so that advisors are really well positioned to give their students the guidance on how to navigate the PA profession because all of the health professions have their own special tweaks and stars about them where you can't say if you want to, if you're on a BSN track, this is going to work for PA and PA is going to work for pharmacy. It's got its own little tweaks. So we really work with them to ensure that the advisors have the necessary information and relevant information to help guide their students on their path, wherever that may lead them. Fantastic resources the PAEA is making available to really make this profession accessible to a broader number of applicants. I'd like to finish with one question that I know is a burning question among pre-applicants. And that is, what is the right time to submit the CASPA application. I see a lot of conversations about that in pre-health forums. When's the right time to hit that submit button? And I think we know that there is no real right time. There's no definitive answer to that. But what advice would you give applicants to say, when is the right time to stop amassing things on your application and just hit the submit button? This is one of the questions I get the most. This is the case where the early bird does not get the worm. So I tell applicants they can stop piddling and stressing over their application once they've proofread it, they've walked away from their application, they've had someone who was not in their immediate family read their application in totality. So not just your personal statement, but your program materials questions and any additional essays that may be in that section. Did you answer every question that is required correctly in the application? 
because once it's submitted, you can't go back and pull it down and say, oh, I need to make an edit to it and do things like that. Once you had it submitted, it's out there for good. So once you have proofread it twice, read it aloud, and had someone who is not in your immediate family proofread your application, that's when you are ready to submit your application. Submitting on April 25th, when the CASPA application opens, is not going to guarantee that you make it into an interview process. I have experienced countless emails and phone calls from applicants who hit submit in less than five minutes. They're like, oh no, I had a placeholder in my personal statement. I had a placeholder in my COVID essay. Can I take it back? Unfortunately, once it's submitted, it's in its final version. So early bird does not get the worm in this situation. Stephanie, I love Erica's point here too about having somebody review your work for you. Just like with a final paper in a class, these are high stakes materials. And when you're working on it and you're worried about it and you're putting a lot of effort into it, you do tend to miss things. And having somebody else review it for you is such a good idea and something that that everybody should consider doing. I think there's often a an angst about people who maybe they're finishing up their final year of undergraduate school and that CASPA application opens up in, in the end of April and maybe their program that they're primarily interested in, their deadline is September 1st or October 1st. And they know that they're going to spend the summer working in a healthcare setting. And so they say, do I wait? Do I wait until June or July or August and get some more healthcare patient care hours on my application before I hit submit? Or do I just go ahead and submit it and have it reflected in my application that I will be spending the summer doing that so that the reviewing committee understands that they will continue to amass healthcare hours? And so I think that's a timing issue. And I think some of that probably has to do with whether or not the program they're applying to has rolling admissions or not. Because sometimes with a program with rolling admissions, the early bird really does get the worm and there is, there's benefit to having that application in early rather than waiting for all of those extra hours. Those extra several hundred, couple hundred hours of patient care experience, while that looks good on their application, may put them at a disadvantage with the rolling admissions program because a bunch of people have already applied ahead of them, correct? Yes. And this is the beauty of the PA profession. There's a delicate dance that you have to do when finding that timing. And thank you, Stephanie, because this is also something that's important. Going back to, I think, one of the earlier questions, what can you use this time for? Reach out to the PA programs that you're interested in applying to and say, hey, I'm graduating in the spring, but I am working as a phlebotomist over the summer. And while I will indicate in my CASPA application, that I am will still be working, I don't have an end date, is it better for me to submit my application earlier or would you rather wait until later in, when I have more healthcare experience hours? On average, applicants apply to about 10 programs. You don't need to contact all 10 of them, but if you contact a good sample size, you can really understand and get a good feel on when I should submit my application, what their preference is. And the beauty with having a centralized application service is that even though 
when you submit your application in those first three sections, you are going to submit the same thing to every PA program. The majority of our programs ask for additional information in the supporting documents section. And that's where you can say, since I've submitted my application, I've continued to work at XYZ healthcare facility doing this. And I've really expounded on said skills and I've been there for this additional time. So you can continue to give that information to the PA programs that you're applying to later in the cycle. This has been really insightful for both of us. It's so great to hear of all the great resources that PAEA is offering applicants and trying to help them with their journey. And we talked about this before we came on the air that we would make many of these links available to our listeners on our website when this is posted. So we appreciate your willingness to help us do that as well. Thank you both for the work that you're doing for our profession and for our applicants. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kevin and Stephanie, for the work that you're doing for the profession. And it was a pleasure to be here with Erica. Yes, I echo Olivia's words. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. We want to thank our guests, Erica Brooks and Olivia Ziegler, for their time and insights on admissions and CASPA. Erica and Olivia provided important information for our listeners on the various resources that PAEA provides related to advisement, applications, and other financial waivers that are available from PAEA. We would also like to extend a special thanks to our episode sponsor, Aquifer. Tune in next time as we continue the conversations with our PA colleagues and leaders around the world.